0: Hello and welcome to Historical True Crime, the podcast where we take a look back at history's darkest crimes and criminals. I'm your host Lizzie, and today is episode 54. Now instead of covering a murderer or a serial killer, we're going to be looking at a different type of criminal, the history of the confidence man, or con men. We'll take a look at three separate historical con men, Thompson, Ponzi, and Lustig. So let's get started. While con artists and tricksters have always existed, many Victorians believed that the confidence man of the 19th century was a distinctly American invention. He was not a standard thief. Instead, he used charming language and outrageous promises to entice his victims into parting with their money, trust, and their confidence. Conning someone is the deliberate deception or exploitation of someone once you have earned their trust. Because con artists frequently straddle the line between what is merely unethical and what is unlawful, they can be challenging to prosecute criminally. Those who do go to court are frequently involved in some sort of fraud. Legally speaking, fraud occurs when one party purposefully distorts the truth or withholds important information— from another in order to influence that other party to act against their best interests. The Big Con, David Maurer's groundbreaking 1940 book, clarified the distinction between confidence games and other crimes. Although the confidence man is sometimes classed with professional thieves, pickpockets, and gamblers, he is really not a thief at all because he does no actual stealing. The trusting victim literally thrusts a fat bankroll into his hands. It's a point of pride with him that he does not have to steal. Confidence men are not crooks in the ordinary sense of the word. They are suave, slick, and capable. Their depredations are very much on the genteel side because of their high intelligence, their solid organization, the widespread convenience of the law, and the fact that the victim sometimes might admit criminal intentions if he wishes to prosecute. Society has been neither willing nor able to avenge itself effectively. According to Emily Harnett for The Atlantic, a man by the name of William Thompson once asked for and stole a gold watch in New York City in 1849. Thompson walks up to a stranger on a bustling Broadway and asks him an odd question. Have you confidence in me to trust me with your watch until tomorrow? The stranger gave him his watch eager to show him that he was sincere. Of course, Thompson did not show up the next day. Others described the scenario as Thompson would get dressed up like a wealthy, sophisticated man, approach another wealthy person, and start a conversation with him as though they were old friends. Thompson made the most of people's innate desire to avoid difficult situations and embarrassing mistakes. He would ask his mark if he had the confidence to trust him with his watch or a modest amount of money until the next day after they'd been chatting for a few minutes. And surprisingly, it worked. The 19th century America must have been simpler, and New Yorkers must have been very different back then. The mark reluctant to offend Thompson frequently would comply. And although Thompson has been mostly forgotten, he nonetheless holds the unique distinction of being the very first person to be referred to as a confidence man, a moniker given to him because, as the researcher Johannes Dietrich Bergman noted in his 1969 essay on the origins of the phrase... He used the word confidence in his swindle when a victim named thomas mcdonald whom thompson had deceived months earlier out of a gold watch valued at around 110 dollars, a substantial sum for that time period saw him on the street thompson was eventually taken into custody in july of 1849 mcdonald notified a police officer who took thompson into custody in spite of his denials and attempts to resist and run Newspapers dubbed Thompson the Confidence Man as he appealed to the victim's confidence, which gave rise to the term that is now used to describe someone who wins over someone else as a ruse before defrauding them. The Confidence Man, a book written by Herman Melville in 1857 and inspired by William Thompson, gave the word even more popularity. Now that we've gone over what a confidence man is and who the person was that inspired the term, We're going to move on to someone else who also left behind a legacy and something that carries his name. The next person we're going to be covering is Charles Ponzi. Now, Charles Ponzi was struggling financially. He was an Italian immigrant who had been in the United States for around 15 years by 1919. He had tried his hand at everything, including bookkeeping, sign painting, grocery clerking, dishwashing and even was a librarian in an attempt to become wealthy. In August, he was fortunate enough to get a letter from Europe. A foreign reply coupon, a nifty way to pay for foreign postage in advance, was in the envelope. Ponzi came to the realization that he could utilize these coupons to become extremely wealthy. All he needed were backers. Early in 1920, Ponzi determined that there was a chance to profit from pricing inefficiencies in international reply coupons, the kind of postage used for international correspondence. Ponzi thought he could borrow funds from investors and then use those funds to purchase international reply coupons at a lower cost in Spain or Italy, have them shipped to the United States, and exchange them for more valuable U.S. postage stamps and then sell the more valuable stamps for cash. He asserted that after costs and exchange rates, his return should exceed 400%. He offered investors a 50% return on their investment in 45 days or a 100% return in 90 days. He informed them he might take advantage of the disparity in the value of international postal reply coupons to accomplish this. It's estimated that in eight months in 1920, he would earn... $15 million, by conning tens of thousands of Bostonians. Because of his extraordinary skill at scamming, Ponzi's name was associated with the technique he used, which was simply the traditional game of borrowing from Peter to pay Paul. The rules are straightforward. Obligations owed to investors from yesterday are settled with funds taken from today's investors. These investors are usually enticed with claims of enormous profits— 50%, even 100%. They're frequently trained to find more investors, so they can get even richer. The issue is that the money is merely being moved from new investors to existing ones, so no real investment is being made. Up until the scam runs out of fresh investors, and the entire house of cards collapses, everything looks good. But Ponzi's lifestyle would eventually begin to gain attention from the media, and would result in a drop in new investors. With no way to reimburse his existing investors, the game was up. After Ponzi was ultimately apprehended and found guilty of running a fraudulent plan, the name Ponzi scheme was coined. Ponzi would be uh, deported back to Italy after being released from prison in 1934 and would only have $75 in his possession when he passed away in a charity hospital in 1949. However, both his name and the scam he created Are still notorious for example a modern Ponzi scheme uh, was done by someone you probably have heard of Bernie Madoff and he's possibly the most well-known Ponzi schemer Madoff investment securities is the name of the investment company that Madoff founded in 1960 the company promised investors returns far higher than the market rates in exchange for deposits but they never made any investments Rather, the company would pay out the promised profits to current investors using, again, the deposits from new investors. Similar to the first Ponzi scheme, the company's ability to pay its investors was compromised when fresh contributions decreased. Madoff would eventually be apprehended by the law and entered a guilty plea in 2009 after admitting to cheating about 4,800 clients out of an estimated $64.8 billion dollars. Over a 20-year period, Madoff would receive a 150-year term to serve in federal prison. Now our final conman we'll be covering is Victor Lustig, and Victor was a con man so smooth that a secret service agent reportedly told him, "You're the smoothest con man that has ever lived," even as he was being arrested. Now that agent was correct. Because Victor would become famous for being the con man who was able to sell the Eiffel Tower in France twice. Victor was born on January 4th, 1890 in the town of Hostin in the Austro-Hungarian Empire, which is now known as the Czech Republic. He would commit card game frauds and small-time thefts while wandering the streets as a youngster, but eventually he'd outgrow those. He left his education at the age of 19 in France and found work on ocean liners, which were the affluent people's favorite means of transportation at that time. Lustig would blend in with the wealthy merchants on these ships, with ease thanks to his multilingualism, composed manner, and well-groomed nails. It was also during this period that he came up with his first con, or his first more complex con, the money box. Victor would first strike up a conversation with a few business people, before deviously revealing his money box, which he claimed could magically create money. He would covertly demonstrate to his new friends by fitting a real $100 bill into the machine's slot, then assisted by another con artist by the name of Dan Collins. Following a certain amount of, quote, chemical processing, the device would release two genuine-looking $100 bills. However, it goes without saying that the money his money box released was fake. Still, he made tens of thousands of dollars by selling the device to naive investors for $100,000. Victor would make his way back to Paris, France in 1925 with the intention of pulling off his biggest scam to date, the sale of the Eiffel Tower. The con artist would address letters with the French government seal to the leaders of the nation's scrap metal business, ...while posing as an official in the French government. According to him, the government was seeking offers to purchase the Eiffel Tower... ...and would consider selling it to the highest bidder. The Eiffel Tower, he'd claim, would have to be torn down because of engineering flaws... ...expensive repairs and political issues that he was not able to address. He'd remind people in his letters that the tower was never intended to be permanent... ...and was constructed as an arch for the 1889 World's Fair... Now, despite how ludicrous this all sounds, his letters were successful, drawing in a flood of bids. Victor would select André Poisson as his target. He would tell André he had obtained the rights to the medal for the Eiffel Tower. However, there was a minor issue. Although Victor and other public servants were expected to dress elegantly and host costly parties, Victor said their pay was quite pitiful and André complied after realizing he was being asked for a bribe to seal the contract. Victor would then escape to Austria after obtaining André's money. He enjoyed the good life there, as was his custom at the expense of another gullible victim. Victor searched the French newspapers for news of his ruse involving the Eiffel Tower for weeks, but he couldn't find any mention. He was accurate in his suspicion that André would be too ashamed of how easily he had fallen for the hoax, to report it to authorities. Brazenly, Victor would pull off the exact same scam with five new scrap iron vendors when he returned to Paris six months later. He amazingly was able to sell the Eiffel Tower for the second time. However, this time, his victim did call the police and the news was reported in the newspapers. Victor would leave Europe quickly and flee to the United States. But he carried on living a beautiful life of deception in the U.S., selling his miracle boxes that printed perfectly counterfeit money. Not to mention, he famously conned Chicago mob boss Al Capone. Victor persuaded Capone to contribute $50,000 to a scam he was doing. And after letting the money sit for two months, Victor informed Capone that his scheme had failed, but would give Capone his $50,000 back just before he turned violent. Victor expected to receive a reward for his honesty, and he was right. Capone ended up giving him $1,000. Now, after being apprehended in 1936 on suspicion of counterfeiting, Victor would spend 11 years in prison until dying in prison in 1947. And if you're interested in becoming a con man yourself, according to Domain for Mental Floss, before his death, Victor did pen his Ten Commandments for prospective con artists. 1. Be a patient listener. It is this, not fast-talking, that gets a con man his coups. 2. Never look bored. 3. Wait for the other person to reveal any political opinions, then agree with them. 4. Let the other person reveal religious views, then have the same ones. 5. Hint at the sex talk, but don't follow it up unless the other fellow shows a strong interest. 6. Never discuss illness unless some special concern is shown. Seven, never pry into a person's personal circumstances. They'll tell you all eventually. Eight, never boast. Just let your importance be quietly obvious. Nine, never be untidy. And ten, never get drunk. And with that, we've come to the end of another episode of Historical True Crime. We hope you've enjoyed this slightly unique one on the history of confidence men and our three stories of Thompson, Ponzi, and Lustig. If you've enjoyed this episode, which we hope you did, please remember to review, rate, subscribe, wherever you listen to your podcasts. If you have any feedback for us or a suggestion of a criminal or a topic you'd like us to cover in an upcoming episode, you can find us on Instagram at historical true crime pod, or you can reach us by email at historical true crime pod at gmail.com. And we'll see you next week for another dark and notorious case from history. We'll see you then.